Heavenly Father, um, you know that uh, you've got a clay vessel here with a, a great message inside. Um, Lord, help people to see past the, the faulty vessel to this wonderful story that you have for us today. And give me the words to speak. In your name we pray. So, today's story um, is about an event that happened a long time ago in first century Palestine. And things have changed a lot since first century Palestine. Um, you know, the language is different, the customs are different, the government's different, the food's different. So, I want to tell you a little fable in modern day so that you can kind of get a feel for what it's like to be here at this scene. And I saw an old friend today, um, so I thought I'd put him into my fable. So um, bear with me. Um, But y'all know, some of you know Calvin Kiefer. Calvin is uh, an old friend. He used to come here uh, regularly, but he's he's been out of town for quite a while. And... uh, Now, in our fable, Calvin went to the Super Bowl. And at the Super Bowl, Calvin ripped out all of the concession stands. This created quite a stir. And people asked him, Calvin, why did you tear out all of the concession stands? He says, you people have turned the Super Bowl into a concession stand. My Super Bowl is not about hot dogs, it's about football. Well, this got people pretty excited. Of course, they thought he was a kind of a nut. So they let him go, they didn't arrest him. But, you know, word got out that he was, uh, he was working miracles. In fact, um, Craig Gilbertson said that he had turned the water in his swimming pool into apple juice. It's true. This great big swimming pool that he has. And, you know, of course, nobody believed it. Everybody figured that, that Gilbertson put the apple juice in the swimming pool. Um, but, you know, there was just a lot of excitement. So everybody was very excited to hear that Calvin was back in town. And he's having breakfast at Scotty B's. And, of course, everybody in town crowds into Scotty B's not because they think Calvin is anything great, but they're just wondering what he's going to do next. So, into the uh, into Scotty B's walks Senator Al Franken, and he walks up to Calvin and he says, "Calvin, I need your help, man. Uh, you see, my son is really sick, and I have taken him to the Mayo Clinic." And they said they can't do anything for him. He's going to die. Would you please just come with me to my house and see if there's anything you can do for my poor son? And Calvin turns to him and he says, Oh, Al Franken, I tell you, you know, you and Obamacare, it's amazing anybody's going to get better. Just go away. Your son is going to be just fine. And everybody's like amazed. They're going, um, you know, Calvin, you may not like this man, but this is Senator Al Franken. You know, you should probably just go with him and mollify the guy. But it turns out that Al Franken's boy gets better. 
And pretty soon, everybody in Al Franken's house has joined the internet uh, program that is, uh, you know, it says Calvin Kiefer for president. You know, there's a, there's a, a groundswell of enthusiasm for Calvin Kiefer for president, which is really kind of a problem because, um, you see, um, President Obama doesn't really like the idea that Calvin Kiefer is being promoted for president. And also, uh, Cargill's a little mad because their hot dog sales have decreased a great deal uh, ever since uh, uh, people stopped eating hot dogs at the Super Bowl. So there's, uh, there's some political ramifications to what this man has done. So um, why this story? You know, this is, this is really an amazing story. This is a story about a miracle of healing. But it's a miracle of healing on more levels than just one. You see, there's a boy who gets well, so there's a physical healing. I'm a doctor. I can get excited about physical healing. But the real healing that you're supposed to see in the story is a spiritual healing. It's a healing of someone from unbelief to belief and a healing from death to spiritual life. And that's the miracle that I missed every single time I read this story for the last 53 years until very recently. And it's the story that I want you to get out of this. So be on the lookout. Don't miss the miracle. Now, you know, John has explained in his gospel, and not yet, but later on in the gospel, he explains why he chose these particular stories to tell us. So in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these are written so that you may believe. And by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. So in fact, this is the second of seven signs that John has chosen to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now there's a little bit of irony here that I don't want you to miss, okay? In verse 48, it says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Isn't that odd. In a story that John has chosen to give us a sign so that we can believe, Jesus criticizes the man in the story for needing a sign to believe. So there must be something else about this story besides the physical healing that everybody could hear about that you need to know. And so that's, that's what I want you to look out, look out for. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses seven to, uh, 13 to 14, at, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, Lord speaks about a wide and a narrow gate. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Along the same lines, just a couple verses later, he says, You recognize, he's talking about trees now. He says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So there's two roads and there's two trees. There's two kinds of belief. There are signs that are present on the wide road, but they are exit signs. This is a story about a man who took the exit sign and about a crowd who stayed on the big road. So it's important to see what was it that this man saw that the crowd didn't see. There's two kinds of belief. There's belief in what you see and you know to be true, and there's belief in what you hear from a credible witness. And it's the latter kind of belief that John is exhorting us to have in this gospel. So don't you think if you're supposed to have that kind of belief, wouldn't it be useful for you to know what the required kind of belief looks like? And that is precisely what the evangelist is showing us in today's gospel reading. For those of you who like to fill out your forms, I'm going to give you the answers right now. So you don't have to wait, okay? Three points. The first is, the belief that John is exhorting us to is not the belief of spectators. Secondly, it's a source of otherwise unexplainable action. And finally, this sort of belief is richly rewarded and fruitful. So my first point. This belief is not a spectator sport. You know... There were a lot of miracles that happened in Jerusalem while the Lord was in Jerusalem. It says that in uh, John chapter 2, verse 23, a a couple chapters back. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay? So they believed what they saw. But here in this verse it says, When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus says to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my son dies. And I'm thinking, Lord, you're kind of harsh on this guy. I mean... Here's a guy who's come to you begging to save the life of his dying son. And you, you treat him like he came and asked you to pull a magic, uh, do a magic trip, pull a rabbit out of a hat. Why did you do that, Lord? Um, and then in verse 50, it says to him, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, isn't that interesting? The Lord just said, unless you see, you will not believe. The man hasn't seen anything, and yet now he believes. Was the Lord wrong? 
Well, one, one point is a little peculiarity about the English language that you may have noticed. And that is that the word you refers to both you, singular, and you, plural. So in some localities, like from where I'm from, from California, we use different terms to describe you, plural. So California, we call it the land of the guys. We say, you guys. And by the way, if I ever ask you guys what you think, or I am addressing you guys, you should know that you guys is a gender-neutral term. It refers to a mixed audience. It refers to an all-male audience. It refers to an all-female audience. It's gender-neutral. So, But when I was in Georgia, they also used a term they'd say, y'all. In fact, they love to say y'all in Georgia. In fact, in Georgia, sometimes when they were speaking to just one person, they would say y'all. So in order to distinguish between y'all and y'all, they would say all y'all. Okay? <laughs> so in the new unabridged Guyrunkel translation for verse 48, which probably will never be published, it says, So Jesus said to the man, Unless all y'all see signs and wonders, you guys will not believe. So who was talking to the whole crowd that was there? He's using a plural form of you. So no doubt, these people who had come to see what he was going to do in Cana came to see a big miracle, and they left. And you know what they saw? Zip. But you know what? They saw exactly the same thing that you can see. Because they could hear this was an important government official. Everybody in town knew that the man's son had been healed, they'd probably go, well, maybe he wasn't all that sick. Maybe. But this man was convinced that the child was dying. My second point, this is really important that you see this. Um, this belief that John is exhorting us to is, leads to some otherwise unexplainable action. I just want to convince you that the way that this government official responded was absolutely extraordinary. See, uh, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. I want you to consider another verse we're going to be studying later. Um, in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 6, um, Jesus is comforting Martha, whose brother Lazarus lies dead in the tomb. And he says to her, he, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's asking you the same question. Do you believe this? I mean, I believe this, right? I mean, the word of God is trustworthy and true. You can bring it to the bank. He says you believe in him. That's the way it is. But you know... Somewhere inside of me, my little brain, it says, is that really all it takes? Just believe in him? I, what about living a good life? What about um, all the things I've done? Um, something in my gut cries out, that's just too, too easy. So I live my life, you know, kind of like Ronald Reagan ran detente. Trust, but verify, you know? 
Let me tell you a little bit about nagging doubts. I have nagging doubts, okay? Let me tell you a scenario that happens to me almost probably four times a week. Young mother brings in her four-year-old son to me and says to me, Doctor, my son is so sick. He's been sick for three days, and he's got a fever of 100 And he's been coughing horribly all night. He can't sleep at all. Nobody can sleep. And he is just so sick. He's usually very playful, very active. And now all he wants to do is just be cuddled. And, you know, I know 100 degrees doesn't sound like much to you, but he never runs a fever. In fact, I've checked his temperature, and it's usually 96. And, you know, even the time last year when he had an ear infection, it was 97 never runs a fever. So I know that he's got something really bad and you've got to give him some antibiotics. So, you know, I tell you a little secret. From this story, also the fact that I look around the corner at the kid and he's like, <laughs> like that. I know this kid is not really as sick as his mother thinks. But uh, I take a look at him. I look in his ears I look in his nose, I listen to his lungs, I look in his throat, I check his temperature, his pulse, and all this, and I say, ma'am, your son has a cold, and uh, he's going to get better, it's just going to take a little bit, you should give him some chicken soup, and have him drink plenty of fluids, some Tylenol if he needs it, gets plenty of rest, he'll be better in a couple of weeks when the cold wears off. And she says to me, uh, doctor, don't, don't you think that you should give him some antibiotics? I say to her, no. Um, antibiotics don't help against the cold. Um, a, the, a cold is caused by a virus, and the antibiotics don't work against a virus. All that you're going to do by giving him antibiotics is to get him some side effects from the antibiotics, like diarrhea. And she says, well, aren't you going to at least do a chest x-ray and make sure he doesn't have pneumonia? My grandfather had pneumonia last year that, you know, when he went in the hospital, they thought his lungs sounded fine, but he went in and he, he on the x-ray it showed he had pneumonia and he died of pneumonia last year. And I say to her, well, this situation, I believe, is a little different. I, I understand your concern, but your child doesn't have pneumonia. I've listened to his lungs. They sound fine. And he's not your grandfather's age, and he doesn't have prostate cancer like your grandfather did, and he's, he's going to be okay. Now, if I'm lucky, we have developed some rapport, and she believes me, and she goes home, and she does what I say, and the boy gets better in a couple of weeks. If I'm not lucky, she decides that I'm a quack, takes her son into the local urgent care center Well, they're going to do a chest x-ray and give him some antibiotics and say, well, good thing we saved his life. Because that's just kind of the way that goes. So, nagging doubts. Very common. Um, now, Jesus talks to this fellow and says, your son will live. Does he have nagging doubts? I'm thinking he's just got to have nagging doubts, right? So, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew 
that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will, will live. And he himself believed in all his family. And I said, aha! Aha! He believed like I believe. Trust but verify. Right? He didn't really believe until he got home and saw that the kid was getting better. Well, I want to share with you a couple of very interesting facts that I've learned that helped me to see this story in an entirely new light. And I think they'll help you that way too. The first fact is this. What time is the seventh hour? It turns out the Jewish people start their day at six o'clock in the evening. So the seventh hour of the night would be one o'clock in the morning. And the seventh hour of the day would be one o'clock in the afternoon. So seven o'clock, sorry, the seventh hour yesterday meant that it was either yesterday at one o'clock or one o'clock in the morning, the morning before yesterday at one o'clock. Okay? That's how long ago it was. Okay. The second thing I want you to know is how far is it from Cana, where the man was speaking to Jesus, to Capernaum, where his son lay dying? Well, we don't know that exactly. See, Cana was a little village, and it no longer exists. But they have archaeologic evidence. They think they know where it is. We know for a fact that it was somewhere close to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Close enough that he'd be invited as a guest at a wedding that would take place in the little town of Cana. And um, the best guess we have is that it's somewhere on the road between Nazareth and Capernaum. Now, Nazareth is 30 miles from Capernaum, and our best guess is this place is about 25 miles from Capernaum. So here we have this worried government official who's undoubtedly the owner of a horse. And even if he doesn't happen to have his horse, he probably can confiscate one from one of the local people about like that. And he is 25 miles from his dying son, and yet it takes him almost a whole day to get partway there. I thought he went on his way. Well, he did go on his way. Um, But, you know, to explore what his way might have been, I want to tell you a little thing I know about being a government official from my old days as a government official. Let me tell you a story about September 25th, 1989. I remember the day because... That was the day my son was born. I was, I was an officer in the Army, and I was stationed at Fort Irwin, California, which is in the middle of the Mojave Desert. In other words, about the middle of nowhere. And my wife and my little daughter were staying in Orange County, where they had relatives in a little apartment in Anaheim, and I would go down and visit them on the weekends. Well, 
The night of the 24th of September, my wife went into labor. And so I called my work and I said, um, I'm not going to be making it in to work on Monday morning because my wife just went into labor. And he was born early that morning. And you know, he was a little bit, his temperature was a little bit down and he was a little jittery and, uh, and he was a little sweaty and his blood sugar was a little bit low and they were a little worried about him. So they were keeping him in the nursery just to keep an eye on him instead of letting him go back and be with my wife um, like they did normal healthy babies. About this time, I get a phone call from the NCOIC. And he says to me, Sir, you, uh, you didn't sign out on leave in the company leave book. We need you to come back and sign out on leave, sir. It's a little irritating being in the Army sometimes, okay? Uh, he was right. See, the book says I'm supposed to sign out on leave when I go on leave. And I don't have to sign out on leave when I'm not on leave. And, you know, the other rule was that we could go wherever we wanted on the weekend without signing out on leave as long as we were back to work on Monday morning. Well, my wife went into labor, so I was not back to work on Monday morning, and I had not signed out on leave. That sergeant could have taken care of this situation by just signing my name in the book and getting the okay from, the, from, the, uh, from his boss, um, the company commander. But he, he didn't really want to. You think, uh, well, you know, you're a captain, and he's a sergeant, so you outrank him, so this is really easy, right? You just give him an order, and, and he'll sign you out. Um, the situation in the Army is a little more complex than that, see? Um, that's true, I was the captain, but I wasn't his captain. And, you know, he may have eaten a little bit of crow dealing with some junior officers, and he just might have had a bad day that week, and sir, you're just going to come back in and sign out on the, on the book. And I could have called his boss, uh, another captain just like me, and I, said, I could have said, Joe, have Sarge sign me out on the thing. But, you know, Joe wasn't a doctor, all right? He had a bunch of doctors in his company that were working for him, like me, and um, maybe he didn't really care for him all that much. And, uh, you know, he probably would have preferred to have, be in the good graces of his NCO than really to have the gratitude of one of the snivelly-nosed doctors that probably had it too easy anyway. So uh, I probably wasn't going to call him. I, I could have called um, my mentor, um, so I was basically the protege of uh, the hospital commander. Um, I was being groomed for a career in academic medicine. And, uh, you know, I, I could have called her and she would have, she was his boss's boss's boss. So I could have called her and it, that would have been it. She would have made it happen, right? Um, but it would have ticked off a bunch of people in between. And uh, was it really worth it? So I put my two-year-old in the car, and I drove the 150 miles back to Fort Irwin to sign the book. 
my sick kid in the nursery and my wife in recovery. I, I called her back up. I said, well, how's he doing? Well, they're watching him. You know, he's, they think he's going to be okay. They'll probably let him out in a few hours. They're just, you know, doing some tests. Now, you know, I've seen this a bunch of times. I deliver babies. I know this. Okay, he's, he's going to be fine. Boy's going to be fine. See this all the time. Worst comes to worst. He gets some tests done. They put him on IV antibiotics for a couple of days, and then everything's still fine. So I was also kind of tired. See, I'd been up for the whole night, and I drove back to Fort Irwin. That's 150 miles. Now I'm going to drive back 150 miles. I could have just stayed at my quarters, let my daughter play with her toys or whatever, and, um, but I didn't. You know, I was pretty sure that my son would be okay. But still, nagging doubt, you know? What if he's not okay? How okay is that going to be? Is there anything I could do? No. Uh, the boy was in good hands. He's in good hands with the hospital there. My, my wife is a competent person. Um, but I got back on the road, and I drove back to be with my son that day. So... Why didn't this guy go back to be with his sick son? Um, Well, you know, if you think my work situation was a little bit complex, let me tell you something about this guy's boss, okay? He's called the Basileus in Greek. That means he was a king's man. That means he worked for the Tetrarch of Galilee. So there wasn't really a king in Galilee at the time, there was a tetrarch, but this Herod was the kind of guy he would have liked to be called the king anyway. Okay, and this is this is a man um, that uh, whose father had heard that Jesus was going to be born, and he um, he he sent some troops in to wipe out all the children in his town so that he could assassinate him. You probably remember that. Um, this is a man of whom Caesar Augustus said. You know, it's better to be Herod's dog than his son. This is one of those sons. Okay? This is a man who, in the worst, making the worst decision of his life, the Lord is sent to him by Pontius Pilate. And instead of trying to talk him out of making the biggest mistake of his life, the Savior of the world didn't think he was worth the breath. This is a man who put John the Baptist to death. Not because he wanted John the Baptist to die, but because he made a promise when he was busy lusting after his niece that was dancing for him. He made a promise to give her what she wanted. She asked for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And she had done this at the instigation of her mother, Herodias, who was now married to this Herod, but previously had been married to his brother, who was still alive, by the way. So, can I say that this man's boss was not exactly a family man? Not a big, not real understanding about family responsibilities and about what you would care for in a son. So, when it says that the man went on his way, What John means is that he went about doing his job as Herod's man, maybe making some visits to some of the local towns in Galilee. He didn't go back to be with his son. 
till the next day. He was so sure that his son was going to be okay that he figured, I got plenty of evenings I can spend with my boy who's now healthy and going to live a long life. Now that's belief. All right, one final point, and that is just how fruitful faith in Christ is. Um, you know, John puts it in verse 53, you may not have, you must have seen this, and he himself believed and all his household. That would include the sick boy. And wait a minute, I told you just a second ago, the man believed back in verse uh, 50, but now you're saying, and now the man believes here in verse 53, what's going on? Well, it's a different kind of belief, all right? Back in verse 50, the man believed what Jesus had said to him. He believed his promise that his son was going to be okay. Now, he knows his son is going to be okay. He came, his son is getting better already. He knows he's going to be okay. He doesn't need Jesus' promise to know that anymore. Now, he believes something else. See, he believed before that Jesus was able to tell him that his son was going to recover because Jesus had predicted it as a prophet. But at that very minute that Jesus said that his son would get better, the boy began to get better. The boy didn't get better because Jesus had prophesied that he was going to get better. The boy got better because Jesus commanded it as Lord. And then this man believes in Jesus, not what Jesus said. He believes in Jesus as the Lord of the world. And all his family. And if you remember that promise that, uh, that uh, they made, uh, that, that the Lord makes to, to Martha, anyone who believes in me will never die. Now, you know, this man was asking the Lord for his son to be healed. He wasn't asking for the moon, okay? He was asking, please let my son recover so that he can live a normal life, so that he can grow up, maybe grow old. He didn't ask him to have his son live forever, but that's what he got. You see, Jesus arranged it so that this man's son would believe, and in believing, have life in his name. Your son will live indeed.